Well, comrade, what now? Straightforward conversation. Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. What's up, everybody? I'm the other co-host. I am Drew. What's shaking? Hey, everyone. So, what we're doing this week is we're going to do one of our book club reviews, or I don't even know if we have a formal name for it at this point. Do we? Uh, we're just going to do know. a book I mean, we, we always <laughs> talk about comics anyway, so... Every yeah, exactly. Like a book club. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So we just decided to do something that was kind of on both of our radars last year, but well, quite frankly, it wasn't on. It wasn't available <laughs> digitally until just this past week. So and and it wasn't like collected till recently. So um, you know, we just figured it was a good opportunity uh, because it was something that I think was caught both of our attentions and we we have a lot of regard for the creative team behind it so uh when when the comic came out we just knew that at some point we'd have to talk about it mm-hmm. and, and uh yeah this comic is immortal sergeant do you mind get letting the good people know who all the creative talent behind it is Immortal Sergeant is by Joe Kelly and Ken Nimura. Joe Kelly is the writer and Ken Nimura is the artist. However, if you read their essays in the back of the book, they do mention that because it was such a closely knit collaboration, there would be a lot of times when Nimura would tweak a line of dialogue here and there, or Joe Kelly would offer some feedback on the final art so when you look at the actual books credits it really just says joe kelly plus ken nimura so it's the two of them this was a nine issue miniseries published by image comics from january of 2023 to september of 2023 but the trade paperback edition only came out this past december like the week before christmas i believe so This is their second collaboration, and we discussed their previous one, which was I Kill Giants. We talked about that one way back in episode 33 when we were talking about fantasy comic book recommendations. Mm -hmm. When we were still baby podcasters. (laughs) We are grown. We is grown man podcasters. Exactly. Man casters. Yes. The man cast. Yeah, we're going to talk been... about the stories within the panels. Yeah, and we sell you uh, deer antler supplements. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to train you so that you can... We give you all the life tips you need so that you can be a real Chad, a real alpha. <laughs> <laughs> we're that kind of podcast now. <laughs> no, we are not. <laughs> I would quit podcasting altogether if that was what we were. Yeah, <laughs> I might quit life. Yeah, 
you gotta take your bone broth supplements because real food is way too processed. You need your you need to get your bone broth straight from the bone. <laughs> that reminds me of a story one of my friends told me once. He grew up going to or participating in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts and stuff like that. Because he, he grew up in kind of a more, I guess, I don't know what you call it, like a rural part of the country. So they would go hunting and stuff like that, right, as part of their scout training. And he told me that one time he was with his scout troop leader and they were hunting deer. They found and, and got one. They, they killed the deer. And then he said that the... And he and his trooper troop leader walked up to the to the body, and then as the guy, the older guy was, you know, cutting it open and stuff, he cut out the heart and took a bite out of it, and then offered it to my friend. Wow! Did your friend eat it? Well, he took a bite out of it, but they both spat it out. You're not supposed to eat stuff like that. But why take a bite out of it then? I guess it was to prove their manhood. It was like a rite of I passage. Are, I think there are better ways to prove my manhood that don't involve me getting parasites. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyways. <laughs> we are not that kind of podcast. <laughs> we are not. We are not. We're here to talk about Immortal Sergeant. And I think I want to say we picked this comic to discuss. We were interested in it because we have a lot of love and appreciation for I Kill Giants. Yeah. I mean, in, in a broader sense, we have a lot of love for Joe Kelly and Ken Nomura. Mm-hmm. That's the name, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How um, much do you really appreciate him if you can't remember his name? <laughs> there are a lot of people that I appreciate where I can't name their names, but you know, I, I wouldn't say that if I remember your name, it's usually because I hate you. So, <laughs> <laughs> if, so it's it's you know it's it's up in the air. Like you either mean a lot to me or I like just utterly despise you, and I am making a mental note of your name so that I can find you later and burn your house to the ground. That's true. When it comes to people that you do like, you don't necessarily remember them by their names. You remember them by their accomplishments. Like you always talk about that one guy who wrote Watchmen. And you, yeah. you can't necessarily remember you know. his name, but you know what he did. Yeah. Yeah. More Allen, right? More. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that being said, um, yeah, we're just bigger fans of their work. And, you know, when they did I Kill Giants, that that was that really does feel like a moment in time for me because that takes me back to a period in time where we were just getting like just hits after hits of comics from these creators that we like and maybe it's it's my age showing and you know me being dated and all but yeah like that's that's a book from a very particular era in my life and a very particular time where i i look fondly upon the books that were coming out so you know when we found out that they were doing another collaboration together it was like whoa awesome another chance to read something new from them and i think this was something that we contemplated doing for our 
uh, New Year's comic because you know we wanted to do something that came out in 2023 that we could discuss but again we didn't have access to it so unfortunately we weren't able to read it but for whatever weird reason like towards the end of uh the year in december they finally like posted it like on on hoopla that very last week so we were just like okay we'll just have to put a feather in it and save it for another episode so here we are yeah, yeah, because the trade came out, I think, uh, December 20th, according to the Image website. Mm-hmm. So it's good that we were able to get it pretty quickly on Hoopla after the physical release. Mm. Drew, do you mind telling us, let's go through the creative people mm-hmm. uh, that worked on this book, but do you mind telling the good listeners and me just your thoughts on let's start with joe kelly okay what, here's what do you what do you feel about the man <laughs> how do i feel about the man i, I never met the man <laughs> I, I assume he's a good guy <laughs> as far as he doesn't I'm, make your, any trouble he doesn't make your nethers tingle <laughs> uh, 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 I, I know how i feel about his work though and i do like his work yeah <laughs> yeah so his work is stuff that i've read quite a bit of let's just go down the line or the let's just take a look at his history of work first of all joe kelly he's a part of man of action studios along with joe casey stephen t siegel and duncan rollo they've done quite a bit of work in animation probably best known for creating uh, ben 10 and i believe they also helped create the big hero 6 movie for disney that was based on a marvel comic but joe kelly his career in comics he's been around for quite a while now kind of like brian k vaughn joe kelly broke into comics via the stan hatton project in the mid 90s do you remember the stan hatton project Albert? I really don't. Like, this is the first time I've ever heard of it, and this isn't even a faulty memory thing. I just don't know what this is in the slightest. So, I've heard Brian K. Vaughn talk about it in interviews and in his biography as well, where he was talking about how the Stan Hatton Project was a New York University program back in the mid 90s, taught by a Marvel Comics editor to try and basically help teach up-and-coming comic book writers. And they try to like funnel these people, these students, into some kind of job in comics. So I think maybe some of them might have become editors or something like that. But I think the most prominent people to come out of that and to be names that we'd recognize would be Joe Kelly, Brian K. Vaughn, and I think Ben Robb might have also come from there. Oh, okay. Yeah, but definitely BKV and Joe Kelly's. They came out of that era. And when they first started, of course, they weren't they weren't tossed onto like the big name books right away or anything. Like when you look at Joe Kelly's bibliography or his history of published work, he started with a, a mini series called 2099 World of Tomorrow. And he did a couple issues of Marvel Fanfare. So, you know, it's just 
that kind of humble beginning work that you get as a young writer doing stuff at Marvel right away, but not necessarily stuff that really stands out or that people will necessarily think of as like a key title. But Kelly came to prominence in 1997 as the writer of the first Deadpool ongoing series. Did you ever read any of that, Albert? I didn't. I am familiar with the fact that after Rob Liefeld, he he was kind of the big name on, or or he was the name that I recognized or most associate with Deadpool after Rob Liefeld. Mm. And uh, but I never actually read any of the Deadpool from that era. There was also before Joe Kelly did the Deadpool ongoing. There were there was at least one miniseries that I I can think of that was written by Mark Wade. Mark Wade did a Deadpool miniseries somewhere in between there. I did not know that. Yeah, dropping knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> so far, this podcast has illuminated the mind of at least one person. Me. Yeah, that's the way to do it, yeah. man. Because if we're aiming to change the minds or affect the hearts of the people who are listening to us, we have to start with ourselves first. <laughs> that's the only way to do this thing, man. Yeah, yeah. You're you're definitely leaving an impact on me. So there you go. <laughs> uh, so he wrote Deadpool but, yeah. in the late 90s. And pretty much ever since then, he's just amassed a massive bibliography with big two credits on a lot of iconic books like your Daredevils, your X-Men's, Amazing Spider-Man, Action Comics, Superboy, JLA. So that's a lot of the, the big titles there. He's also done... DC books that are kind of off the beaten path, stuff that's that was published by DC but isn't necessarily big name. He did Steampunk with Chris Bacalo. There was another miniseries he did called Engine Head with Ted McKeever. This one's a gem. I really enjoyed this one. But Space Ghost with Ariel Olivetti, you know, the Hanna-Barbera character. He did a modern yeah. take on that, I don't know, sometime in like the early 2000s. And he did a Vertigo comic called Bang Tango with Adrian Seabar. That one, I, I've never read it. I remember seeing random issues of it in the quarter bins. And I, I think I did read like a random issue that I found, but never enough to piece the whole thing together. So hmm. be curious if I could ever find it, then I'd give it a shot. In terms of his creator-owned work, some of his more notable titles are the aforementioned I Kill Giants and another one called Four Eyes at Image. But I know you've read at least some Joe Kelly other than I Killed Giants. So what are your general thoughts on his work, or do you have any particular favorites? Yeah, Joe Kelly came up in that period of time, as I mentioned earlier, where you know we were just seeing a lot of writers just coming into comics who were leaving a pretty big mark and yeah, they were just writers that I was pretty fond of. So, you know, you mentioned guys like Joe Kelly, Joe Casey, uh, Stephen T. Siegel was doing some comics. Like, I don't know if they were like right up in in terms of like their timelines, right, right up with another one another. But, you know, we've talked yeah, about. I think they were. I remember well. uh, Joe yeah. Kelly and Stephen T. Siegel were writing the X-Men books yeah. around the same time. Yeah. And I feel like Joe Casey was kind of 
mm-hmm. in, in you know in the mix there around that time. Maybe you could throw in someone yeah, like uh, late nineties, Sean, Sean McKeever. Um, yeah, you know, just yeah, these were just the kind of writers that shaped my appreciation for comics at a point in time where I needed them the most. And I think in terms of my favorite Joe Kelly comic, it's probably always going to be Action Comic 775. We mm. talked about that a little, I believe, but that's the it's a Superman comic entitled What's So Funny About Truth, Justice, and the American Way. And mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a one issue Superman story about a giant size issue. Yeah, it's a giant size issue about the advent of these really of of the kind of teams that were popular at the time, which was these really hyper aggressive, hostile, badass, take no prisoners sort of uh, teams that were very prominent at the time because of comics like The Authority. So this was a time where that attitude was sort of permeating uh, comics, and people were that was that was what was popular. So Joe Kelly decided to do a comic that was a response to that where it pitted Superman against a a team that just had no real scruples, no no sense of restraint and just really cared about essentially getting results at, at no matter the cost and it's through this through this prism that you can really view where 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 Joe Kelly makes his sta- statement about Superman, which is in a world as mean spirited and as hostile and uh, as aggressive as the one we live in, it's kind of more important that we have heroes like Superman to uphold the better angels of our nature. So mm-hmm. it's it's a comic that I'm always very fond of. In terms of uh, his other work, we we mentioned. I kill giants. I do. I I still have a lot of affection for that. It's just a great mother daughter story. In in terms of his other works, I have read his Justice League. That's a good Justice League run. I I know Doug Munch. Doug Munch did the art for it, right? Or Doug Monkey. Doug Monkey. Yeah, I always get those two mixed up. <laughs> they have M's. Uh, they're they're Dugs with M's. So. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, Doug Monkey did the art, and I'm I'm a fan of his. I don't know, remember if he did all of it. I don't think he did the whole run, did he? There might anyway. have been like a couple fill-in issues by Chris Cross. I want to say. Okay, okay, yeah, but that's it's a fun, it's up there in terms of Justice League runs because if you look at the stuff that came out under Grant Morrison and just the period after him we were just getting hit after hit for the justice league you know the J- those yeah. jla books were just it was it was prime time it was it was you know michael jordan on the bulls you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah this was just a good era of justice league comics jla comics and and it was just hit after hit after hit so uh, went from grant uh, morrison to mark, mark wade, wade to joe kelly joe kelly after that yeah then, and they all did top tier work they really did they really did i think joe kelly might have been the end of it right because after that we have like infinite uh, crisis and then brad yeah. Meltzer takes over 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah there were a couple that of. That was kind uh, of the end of it. <laughs> yeah. After Joe Kelly, there were a couple of other shorter arcs from different writers. Like, I, I think, I want to say Claremont and Burn one. actually had an arc on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the JLA fought vampires. <laughs> yeah. That's everything you hate in one place. That's the hat trick right there, Drew. Yeah. He's got Chris Claremont. got John Byrne. Don't Byrne. like John Byrne. <laughs> don't like vampires. <laughs> Put them all together. <laughs> it's just a turd sandwich right there. Yeah. <laughs> that was definitely the, the weakest the weakest arc of them all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it was called the Seventh Circle. Or something like that. Or the tenth circle, but the ten was the Roman numeral X because you know it's the X Men creators. So it's X Circle. <laughs> yeah, the X Circle. <laughs> Lame. They really Lame. wanted to capitalize on the marketing yeah. of having Claremont yeah. and Burn. For whatever reason, Batman held his batarangs in between his fingers like claws. <laughs> <laughs> Superman's eyes were always glowing red. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I really appreciated uh, that run that he did on uh, Justice League. I I did read some of his Four Eyes. That's that's kind of a fun comic that he worked on. He did it with, I believe, Sebastian Fermura. And I just love that guy's artwork. That guy's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just he's... He's a guy who who knows good talent and um you know knows who who who's who's worth collaborating with for sure. I think Four uh, Eyes was I think with Max Fumara. Oh, Max Fumara, yeah. Yeah. Brothers. Yeah. Sometimes yeah, I get um, them confused because they're brothers. Yeah. But I think more recently in terms of mainstream stuff, I feel like Joe Kelly might have done some Spider Man comics, like some miniseries, but Yeah. Yeah, there was a Red recent, nose. a more recent miniseries. I want to say it was uh, Nonstop Spider-Man or something like that. Yeah, I'd be, he, I'd be interested in checking that out just, just because his name's attached to it. Yeah, I remember I borrowed that from the library. It was solid. It felt like okay, there was supposed to be more, but I don't know if there was ever a follow-up to it. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. There was also a yeah. Spider-Man Deadpool ongoing series that he did with uh, Ed McGuinness. I never had a chance to to get that one, though. But that one might have been... Oh, yeah. According to Wikipedia, that one was 18 issues long. Oh, decent run. Yeah, yeah, not bad. Yeah. Uh, in terms of his cartoon work, I... Of the two of us, uh, between me and Drew, I'm... I, I'm probably the one who watches more cartoons, but you're an animation cinephile, an anaphile. Yeah. Animation yeah. file. <laughs> a cartoonophile. Uh, you're a tunaphile. Keep, keep pushing. Tuna-file. Yeah. Yeah. It means that I like to have sex with tuna. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> You are the if we were to extrapolate aficionado. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if we were to extrapolate the the use of the uh n part of file with with how I've associated it in the past, then 
that is what my natural conclusion would be. So there we go. Okay. Yeah. 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 You were a two. But that being said, yeah. But that being said, uh, I I can't say that I've watched any uh, Ben Ten, which is probably what he's best known for. But I will. I do. I'm very aware of it, and I know it's something that they've re re uh re relaunched a couple of times so you know they're probably doing pretty well for themselves yeah it's a it's based seems off like that. a, a long lasting franchise yeah they make toys from it they make cartoons and uh they even had like a live action made for tv movie which is mm. pretty cool yeah so yeah that's that's my thoughts on Joe Kelly. You got anything on Ken Nomura? You don't even want to know what my favorite Joe Kelly comics are? That hurts. Oh, <laughs> tell me, <laughs> tell me, tell me, tell me, Drew. Dude, I would probably say that his JLA is my favorite. It's a, I mean, it's a toss-up between that and I Kill Giants because that's also such a personal work, you know. And, you know, that one is that one feels more like his work the same way that Immortal Sergeant feels like his work, too. But as far as his work for higher stuff goes, JLA is pretty high up there. I think it would actually be my favorite run of JLA in general, his run with Doug Mounkey. Like, I, yeah. I would say Grant Morrison's run is more important and more influential, but in terms of just what I vibe with and what I your personal favorite. Yeah. That it's the Kelly and Mankey run. Plus I like Mankey's art a lot yeah. more than Howard Porter. Yeah. I remember the first time you told me that it, it surprised me. I was taken aback, but I get it. I get it. Yeah. I go back and yeah. flip through and even reread those, their JLA issues more than Grant Morrison's issues. Honestly, like with Morrison stuff, yeah. I feel like I sometimes flip through it just to try and remember what happened in a specific storyline. But sometimes with the Joe Kelly and Doug Mankey stuff, when I flip through that, I'll be so like enraptured by the way it looks that I'll just start reading wherever I open it up to and start just reading nice. through it there from that point on. And right. yeah, I can kind of get lost in it just hits all the high notes for me in terms of what makes the JLA cool, but it's also a run where the individual stories themselves are all really, really solid stories. But if you read his run from the beginning to the end, there's like a real buildup to it. And, um, you know, an overarching story that, that goes somewhere. And then there was a spinoff that they did called justice league elite that also touches on, the ideas that you were discussing when you mentioned action comics 775 because yeah the justice league elite 12 issue series was kind of a fallout from the action comics issue that he did uh, or that spe that specific issue i do want to reread his action comics run i have all the issues and i read it one time through and i remember I definitely remember enjoying it and having a good time with it, but other than some of the bigger issues, I can't say I remember too many specifics. I just remember that I thought it was good, and that's why I kept it. So, yeah, one of these days I want to reread that. 
And I got love for his Deadpool run. That's probably the best Deadpool series for my money. Yeah, that's high praise because most people would give it to Rob Liefeld because the Rob <laughs> Liefeld. Would they? <laughs> I feel like I Deadpool so. had so many runs. There, there'd be a lot of people who would like. I don't know. <laughs> There's been a lot of jobber Deadpool comics too. There have been a lot of. Jo- I would say just in terms of the majority of Deadpool comics have probably been <laughs> jobber comics. It's it's more likely that you got jobber Deadpool comics than not. So That's true. That's true. And we do go. make fun of Deadpool quite a bit on our podcast, but I will say that Joe Kelly's Deadpool is genuinely good. So I don't I don't necessarily hate the character when a good person is working on the character. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, of course. You've uh you're you're you don't limit yourself to just liking the character just because or hating yeah, exactly. the just because there's enough logic and justification there, so I I get it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you know what's up. <laughs> you don't do a podcast with the guy for as long as I have and not know. We got some chemistry, man. We got chemistry. We sizzling. I'd, I'd like to think so. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be weird if like we like just came off up off the street and just started podcasting like this and you know <laughs> unbeknownst to our listeners, this is the first time we've ever talked. We have never met in person. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Who is you? What is you about? <laughs> All right, anyways, you want to talk about Ken Nomura a little bit? Sure. So here's what I know about Ken Nomura. I don't necessarily know as much about him and his work as I know about Joe Kelly's work. But Ken Nomura, he's half Japanese, half Spanish, and he's an artist who's worked in the European, Japanese, and American comics industries. So he's got a wide variety and wide breadth of experience and influences I think even at this point, he's probably still best known for I Kill Giants, just because that was such a critically acclaimed and well-respected book. And I don't know if it really matters, but somebody made a movie based on it, too. So it's definitely something that grabbed attention. But he also has written written and drawn some of his own comics as well. And the ones that I would highlight are Henshin, which is available from Image. There's Umami, which is available on Panel Syndicate, the digital comics provider. And the third thing that I'd want to point out is a book he did called Never Open It, the Taboo Trilogy, which is published by Yen Press. Now, I have not read Umami, but I think you have read Henshin, which I also haven't read. So what are your thoughts on Henshin or just his work in general? He is definitely, if it's not actually manga, it's definitely manga inspired or manga adjacent. I I, I think personally, I would probably say it's fair to call it manga, Mm -hmm. right? In terms of his art style, it's, it's got a lot of the signature like line strokes and character designs um yeah just at a glance i think 
that you would look at that and very easily associate it with manga. Uh, I do think that he he makes it his own. Uh, he he adds, excuse me, flourishes to it that he makes his own. So it's not stereotypically manga in the sense that they've all got like really big round eyes, uh, you know, almond eyes or whatever shape you want to call those egg eyes. That sounds kind of racist. Well, I'm a pretty racist guy. So anyways, (laughs) um, (laughs) what do you expect a racist guy to say? Racist things. Come on, Drew. (laughs) Where's your head? (laughs) But yeah, like I, I would say, I don't know what shape you would call uh, the, the the eyes when for anime characters or manga characters, but you know they're big round eyes, right? But he he does it in his own way that it's different enough, and you would recognize it as his own, and you definitely see it as anime inspired. I do like his art. I think it's really cartoony. It's really fun, and I have. Uh yeah, I, I read Henshin and I thought it was quite good. I, I found it off Hoopla and unfortunately I looked it up, or at least I looked by Ken Nomura's name and I don't know if it's on Hoopla anymore. They might have removed it. I'd have to go back and do a more thorough search to see if it's actually in there. But hey, dude, why they do that? I don't know. I, I I imagine that it's a licensing thing where they can only keep certain things on for a certain period of time so they're just constantly changing their their uh their library uh, you know their the the library of digital books that they have up so it's just constantly rotating Haters. but yeah i yeah <laughs> yeah but i did read it i thought it was really good it's a i don't remember any of the specific stories as of right now just because it was an anthology. It was an anthology series, so there were quite a few different short stories in it. And I just remember thinking that it was of high quality and uh, uh, definitely just met every standard that I held and expected of him. But I just, it's just been a while, so I don't fully remember all of it. But I. I did like it, and if if you get the chance to read it, I would recommend it. If it's on Hoopla, check it out. If not, uh, yeah, go read it uh, via the library or even buy your own copy, you know, support them in. But, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I have read the Taboo Trilogy, Never Open It. That one was also an anthology. It's a collection of three short stories that are all about not opening something So one of them is about not opening a box. Another one is about not opening a jar. And then another one is about not opening a door. So they're all tied together by that sort of forbidden opening theme. And they're about the unexpected unexpected consequences of disobeying that straightforward directive. And they're all also adaptations based on classic Japanese folklore and fables. But I thought they were all really good. Like, that's a book where if I found a copy of it, I would definitely buy it for myself. It's... uh kind of creepy. Creepy? Uh, yeah, I guess it's got some creepy elements to it. Yeah, it's it's got some creepy elements to it. It's also got some really contemplative elements to it. It's 
something where because i think he wrote andrew it himself he's not afraid to just let his arc his artwork speak for itself so there's a lot more mood and atmosphere imbued into those pages it looks like he did some different things in that book than he did in i killed giants or immortal immortal sergeant as well because the some of the brushwork in never open it looks a lot more ornate looks thicker um but it's still definitely got his trademark style some of the landscapes and, and backgrounds and stuff look pretty intriguing because of that heavier brushwork yeah it's uh it was good stuff man he's he's definitely a great storyteller yeah he has that deceptively simple style where people can look at his art and say it looks kind of half-baked or half-finished or kind of scribbly or you know it's not super detailed but when you really step back and consider his artwork in in the context of telling a story it's actually very elegant yeah yeah and i will say that i didn't realize that he had done this other series that you mentioned umami but i was looking at that when you brought it up and that looks really interesting i kind of want to check it out when i get a chance yeah yeah it's on panel syndicate so you can get it whenever you want for however much you want sweet i will pop on right after this this episode has been sponsored by panel syndicate no we're actually not sponsored (laughs) (laughs) yeah no one trusts us enough not to say something that'll get them canceled (laughs) you just heard it earlier man Albert's yeah. uh, all about saying racist stuff, so it would be pretty yeah. troublesome if if one of our sponsors, uh, if we had a sponsor who was associated with someone who would yeah. say stuff like that. Why do you think our the sponsors that we do get are terrible? Why do you think like we get sponsors from like smallpox or the plague? <laughs> <laughs> who would sponsor us? <laughs> oh man, too funny. Shall we talk about the book? Yeah, I can try to give a synopsis of it. I have the synopsis from the image website, if if that's easier. Do it, do it, do it, do it. Award-winning I Kill Giants storytellers Joe Kelly and Ken Nomura return to yank on your heartstrings with Immortal Sergeant. On the eve of his unwelcome retirement, Jim Sargent aka sarge a grizzled old school detective catches a break on a murder case that's haunted him for decades unfortunately sarge must drag his anxiety riddled adult son michael along for the ride or risk losing the lead forever can this dysfunctional duo overcome their own hang-ups blind spots and secrets to catch a killer how's that sound albert that's uh intriguing stuff there's a lot of tension there a lot of suspense i it just leaves me wanting to know can they (laughs) well can they (laughs) are we about to spoil the comic or did you want to provide Uh, like a general spoiler free review before we dive into our discussion let's do that so we've given you the synopses. We'll we'll give our just general feelings on what we thought of it, and then we'll do we will tear the band-aid off the spoilers and then go into our deep dive in which we discuss the more specific elements of what we're working on. 
or what we're reading rather mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sound good sounds good all right i will say i'll i'll i'll, I'll go first on this how's that be my guest all right so uh in brief i i liked it i thought after reading it it they did not disappoint uh you know my expectations were high because you know we read i kill giants and you know as drew stated it was a a personal story that they wrote you know you could tell that it came from uh, uh a personal place and going into this you know, you kind of wonder if lightning's going to strike twice. And personally, I thought it, I thought they did a more than adequate, they did a good job of following up that work. I was, I was, I was happy with the results. Well, you know, as happy as I can be. Yeah. yeah, I was happy with the results. <laughs> for all you guys who I was don't satisfied know, with the results. <laughs> for all you guys who don't know Albert personally, that is extremely high praise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I'm kind of a miserable bastard. <laughs> if he says something is adequate, that usually means for a regular person it'd be pretty good. Like say you go to a diner with Albert and you have some kind of hash brown scramble or something. And if it's something that you really, really love and you think it's great for Albert, it would just be like, I guess it didn't make me sick, so it's all right. But from him, <laughs> that's a great compliment. That's a yeah, great compliment yeah. because he hates almost everybody and everything. So if he says yeah, something see, that's adequate, that's excellent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he got it. He got me. <laughs> Yeah, but I was I was satisfied with the book. I was immensely satisfied with the book, and I do think it was a good follow up to what they had written. And um, well, I will say this: uh, going into it, the first couple of issues or chapters, whatever you want to call them, as I was reading it, there was something that I was consciously aware of, which is that uh, the character of Sergeant in in the series he's he's a pretty unlikable character but i think i constantly just had to remind myself that he was written in such a way with a purpose so you know by the time we get to the end of it it's yeah I, I saw what the point was so you know it's a testament to their ability to write a story about a character that isn't very likable but to make you care about them and to make you follow them and see their story through to the end so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it worked for me yeah true it worked for me too i agree when i first started reading it the character of sergeant who is the the father of the duo he's he's not just unlikable he's he's straight up repulsive i would say like if you knew a guy like this in real life you would definitely hate him Mm. and and yet as you were describing somehow the story still works you know like it's it's not something that that's he's an intentionally repulsive character but it doesn't mean that the story itself is repulsive in any way you know like the character yeah says things that are horribly racist or sexist and offensive but you he's never get cruel this, for he's, he's no cruel. real reason he's he's an yeah. awful father 
an awful husband. There's, I won't say he has no redeeming qualities because, like, he's a person with complexity and and just layers of of depth. So that's a credit to Kelly and Nimura for being able to imbue one of their characters with that level of complication. But I think I could understand somewhat if somebody just picked this up and was like, man, this is awful. Like I can't read a comic that has these awful things or has a character who says these awful things. And I, I certainly am familiar with readers who would read something like this and assume that the stuff that's coming out of the character's mouth is somehow an excuse for the it writer. Yeah, exactly. And and I definitely don't see yeah. it like that. There's a point to it. Like you said, there's a point to it. You have to stick with the story, but there is a point. And I even think that as you're reading it, it should be pretty clear that you're not supposed to be impressed by a lot of the things or anything that the character Sarge says. He's, he's there not to make you feel like you have somebody who can justify your racism or your sexism or homophobia or anything like that. I, th- I think it's pretty obvious that seeing him say stuff like that in the story just kind of shows you how stupid he sounds. Yeah. Yeah. As far as the rest of the book overall goes, I would say that, I really liked it a whole lot. Maybe even loved it. It's something that I would want to reread. So I think I'll, if I ever get the chance, I'll, I'd like to buy my own copy of this. It really does sit up there with I Kill Giants for me. I think it's a very well-crafted piece of work. I think you could see how much care and attention they, they put into every page. Just the thoughtfulness of it all, the the structure of it and the pacing. And as a companion piece to I Kill Giants, there is something kind of fascinating about it. I don't know if it was intentional, but because Immortal Sergeant is about a father and son relationship, Mm -hmm. I Kill Giants was about a mother and daughter. I don't know if that was, if they meant to do that or if it was just kind of a lucky coincidence, but that that kind of fascinates me. So part of me would want to like go back and reread I Kill Giants and then reread this book just to see what other parallels I can draw. There's a pretty interesting yeah. afterword that Joe Kelly writes uh, at the end of the book where he talks about like some of the history of it. I guess I won't really get into that until we talk about the spoilers, but um, I think when you read that, you'll be far more appreciative of the kind of thought and depth that went into the story of Immortal Sergeant. But yeah, overall, great piece of work. I loved it. I would highly recommend it. Anyone listening out there, if you haven't read it, should definitely go check it out. It's it's not necessarily like the most comfortable read. There's plenty of cringy moments in it. Mm. Or I would... Cringy in the sense that it's a one of the main characters is just an awful person, so you know it's intentionally yeah, yeah. cringy, is what I mean. 
Um, the other yeah. main character is Michael, the son who who goes on the on the trip with him. But it it works as like this kind of buddy road trip story, I guess I would say. Like I don't know if buddy is the right word because they're kind of antagonistic towards each other. But it's a father and a grown son who's like in his 30s, probably 35 or something. They they really don't get along. They yeah, they're at odds, and and it's partly about their troubled relationship and how they don't yeah. get along and all the stuff that happens in their past. So there's like this real emotional meat to the heart of the story. But then like the plot is driven by Sarge himself trying to solve this mystery or solve this murder that he's been, uh, that's, that's haunted him. Yeah. For, for multiple decades. And, yeah. And he kind of drags his son along with him and they're both resentful of each other. Mm. Makes it pretty compelling and just a, a great read with excellent artwork. Yeah. For the record, I would probably, designated a buddy a buddy cop sort of story to me it's more of a buddy cop story than not if only because yeah they might be hostile and antagonistic towards one another but i think that's part of the buddy cop formula is that if you look at movies like lethal weapon or 48 hours they they don't really like each other and that's where a lot of the comedy comes from yeah it's, yeah, it's usually a thing that where over the course of the story they begrudgingly begin to care for one another, which I think is apt for what we what we see here in uh, Immortal Sergeant. True. Yeah, that's a good point. And there is comedy in this book too. It's the kind of comedy that kind of. Uh... I guess I would say it's it's kind of cringe comedy, you know? Like it's it's the comedy that if you heard people having this kind of interaction in real life, you would probably not want to get involved, but because you're reading a story, it's strangely fascinating. Yeah. Well, we've both given our our brief assessments. I guess we can talk about it in depth now and just yeah, go full spoilers. Full spoilers dead ahead. All right. So, Drew, let's let's jump into the meat of it. So the story is about how Sergeant, Detective Sergeant, it's Detective Sergeant, right? Yeah, Detective, Detective Sergeant, Sergeant, is, Sergeant. <laughs> okay, Detective Sergeant Sergeant is, <laughs> is in the middle of retirement, but he's always had this one murder that's haunted him his entire life, which is... Uh, he goes to the park and he finds the corpse of a little girl and he ends up finding the murderer. Um, I, f- I forget the character's name, but he goes by Crusher. That's his, you know, his moniker, his street name, yeah. I guess. I want to say his and... last name is Birdsall, I think. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And the sergeant does take him in, but due to, you know, logistics and due to technical circumstances, He's able to get out, and the guy just disappears, you know, off the face of the earth, because, you know, that's something that happens sometimes. And 
in the midst of his retirement, his son, Michael, comes home and you can tell that they've got this fractured relationship with one another. And he decides to. Against, I think, most of our better judgments and against perhaps even logic and reason, logic that certainly I fail to see at the beginning of the story, he comes home to you know celebrate this with his father, even though his father is antagonistic and hostile and cruel towards him mm-hmm. but but while they're out there um sergeant sergeant ends up seeing the brother of crusher and he knows that crusher's brother in all likelihood has ties to to crusher so he kidnaps his son or or drags him along with him rather and they go on this road trip where he follows um, Crusher's brother in, in the hopes of that he will be led to Crusher so that he can finally exact justice slash vengeance for this little girl who was strangled to death by by him, by Crusher. Um, you know, his own daughter. Kind of his own daughter, yeah. And, and this is his way of putting a period on his career because it's sort of the one case that got away from him Mm -hmm. and over the course of the trip you observe these two as they interact with each other and you know sergeant is i guess you could describe him as your stereotypical gruff police type uh just someone who is no nonsense doesn't really feel the need to mince words or to coddle or to coddle your feelings or to be considerate of you in any way in some instances he'll even go out of his way to say things just to get a rise out of you because you know what are you gonna do right yeah and and michael is is pretty much his polar opposite in the sense that he's i guess what you would imagine as a stereotypical you know weak willed sort of liberal type right maybe maybe he's got high-minded ideals but in some ways he might be a little too idealistic or even um slightly naive uh, maybe Naive, yeah, yeah, naive, exactly. I think naive is was exactly the word I was looking for. And but in spite of that, they're family and they they have to interact with each other and, and this road trip that they go on um forces them to be in proximity with each other and forces them to really deal with a lot of the baggage that the two of them have been carrying with them for for years yeah Mm -hmm. so there's a little bit of context there um yeah i'm kind of curious if uh there were any themes or ideas that jumped out at you drew from from this story i think what stood out to me uh first and foremost as i was listening to your summary there the thing that jumps out as I'm reflecting back on my first experience reading the book is how much or the, the way that all of those details are 
revealed to us gradually because when the story starts mm. i didn't know most of that stuff like we get l- little snippets little flashbacks little scenes that kind of hint at these events like you you do know that there's something going on with uh sarge and and something is haunting him on his on the eve of his retirement but on the other hand uh we don't know exactly what that case is. Uh, we don't know what his relationship with his son is um, until we see them interact. And, you know, they're super antagonistic towards each other. Yeah. But all yeah. of that stuff gets revealed throughout the story. As you keep keep on reading it, things get revealed. Because I'm, I'm just flipping through it again uh, on the digital version. And, like, on page 25 of the of the book, the first issue... Uh, I guess even page 24, there's a scene when Sarge is just driving and um, you see in the glove compartment or on on the seat next to him, I guess, he took the evidence of the little girl's shoe. And at first, it yeah. doesn't really mean too much. Like, you're just like, oh, why is, why is that there? And then you have a flashback where you see in the panel... You don't see the whole body, but you see a little foot and you see the shoe hanging, you know, a couple inches off the foot. And, you know, that's enough to signify, oh, a little kid got murdered and this is a piece of evidence. So he's probably, you know, clinging on to that because that case means something to him. And you just kind of assume that he probably didn't solve it. He's probably haunted by it somehow. But. It's not until you read further into the story that you you discover what that is and you, you learn that it was a girl who was murdered by her own father, a one-year-old girl, and then, you know, all that other stuff with his son, you know, the fact that you learn the fact that the day that the girl, that the, that her body was discovered was the same day that his son was born. So, like, there's this kind of bizarre connection uh, between that yeah. murder and the birth of his yeah. son. And it's just caused all these, I guess, lingering resentments and guilty feelings over it. Just, you know, really harmful stuff that has just been bottled up because he's not the kind of man who will ever talk about his emotions and instead just drinks a lot and gets angry and abusive and stuff like that. But I think the way that the story unfolds is really suspenseful because it just keeps you wanting to know more details about what happened in the past and what happened between Michael and and Sarge. So the structure of yeah. it is so so compelling, man. Like it really did grab me. It's a it's a very character driven story, but it never feels like it's bogged down by exposition or or too many words or anything like that it it really feels like well paced and and it's a good read yeah a good reading experience absolutely yeah you you hit it on the head when you say that the the focal point of the book or, or i guess the 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 driving force of the book really is that they don't give you all the details up front they they 
they pace it just right so that every revelation is done with the explicit purpose of just illuminating more of the story you know it's impactful right these these uh these drops because you know once when you start reading it out of context it's very easy for well it was very easy for me to to just kind of go to a place where in my head reading uh about sergeant i i could just kind of presume that i knew who this guy was and what this guy was about and it was easy for me to just go oh he's just kind of a dick you know <laughs> and that's kind of all i needed to know but you know the effectiveness of the storytelling is that if you pace it right and if you like drop the the correct information at the right time and place then you slowly build up you slowly build up the revelation for why he is the way he is so by the time you get to the end of it it's it's almost like a puzzle where it's all laid out before you and it all makes so much sense now and maybe i can't go so far as to say that i like sergeant by the end of it but i get him it, yeah it yeah exactly sense. yeah 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 that makes sense because i i would agree sarge i don't think he necessarily becomes a likable character by the end but by the end of it yeah you do understand him as a reader you you get where he's coming from you you can recognize the complexities in the person in the character and it just makes it feel like joe kelly and ken Nomura created a, a character that has those multi-faceted dimensions you know like he's he's a rich character he's not just some like yeah i think he could have very easily been just a stereotypical hard ass right mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. there are even points in the story where there's a point in one of the issues when sergeant ends up going after they get arrested he gets let out and you know he he talks to these other cops and he he i guess appeals to their their shared profession right so mm -hmm. they're in georgia mm -hmm. they're in atlanta georgia he's he's tracking this guy down um he's tracking crusher's brother down and they've just both been arrested for stealing a car because michael is trying to stop uh sergeant because he's found out that sergeant's plan sergeant's plan is that he's going to take the law into his own hands and when he finds crusher he's going to kill him mm. but yeah that's that's essentially the plan right but uh this other cop he's talking to this guy is probably more of a caricature in the sense that this guy's an actual racist and this guy is yeah actually someone who's probably allowed the darkest impulses of his character to take over and it's something that absolutely corrupts him in terms of his job so you know sergeant goes to this guy this other detective in this other city and you know he explains his entire situation and this other police officer helps him out by giving him the information of where he can find uh where he can find uh this crusher's brother right yeah but but they sit down there and they talk about it 
they talk about what ha- uh they they talk with each other and yeah it just turns out that this guy's really just an actual racist because he he talks about how how callous he is about human life about these people and you know you can tell that when he goes to this restaurant in the south that he he sort of bullies everyone around him and even though the staff at this restaurant pretend to like him at one point when the guy's not looking they spit in his coffee yeah. you know but he thinks he thinks he's like beloved by these people he's super clueless so, super clueless exactly and so sergeant is talking with him and you know he has a you would think that they're both cops and they're both they both have the same objective in this moment but after talking with him for a brief moment he just sergeant gets his measure of this guy and he knows that even though we on the surface we might both sound alike like i actually care about these people i there's a part of me that you know sees them as people whereas this this guy is just kind of a corrupt douche so um the interesting thing about that specific scene though is that a lot of the stuff Uh that that southern cop was saying was the same stuff that sarge himself was saying exactly exactly but the fact that sarge was seeing this other guy say all the stuff that he said it it's almost like it kind of like shook him in a way in a mirror yeah he's looking in a mirror and and like on some level he recognizes that this this guy isn't a good guy yeah yeah and and it's interesting because earlier on in the in this in the series or in the story he he has his own sort of watering hole that he goes to he has a diner that he goes to with you know um black woman that serves uh that serves him and he has a similar kind of relationship with this woman but in his mind you know as far as we can tell it's it's a it's a i don't know if happy is the right word but as far (laughs) as we can tell it's a good relationship right as as far as we can tell she's not spitting in his coffee exactly exactly there's something about him that she sees and that she appreciates and she can kind of get past his gruff exterior they give each other sass yeah they give each other sass exactly but now that i'm thinking about it for all we know if this moment really is him seeing his own reflection i wonder if he thinks i wonder if that lady spits in my coffee (laughs) yeah exactly exactly right because because the way that it's portrayed when you see him at that diner they they trade barbs with one another, but it's playful, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but who's to say, like, what she really feels towards him? They don't show, they certainly don't show us, the reader, what she does when she go get, gets his coffee, right? Yeah, so yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if she did the that. same kind of thing. Yeah. If she's yeah. his food or whatever, you know? Like, she could just be putting on an act just for him, but... When she's with her coworkers or in private, you know, she's probably talking mad trash about yeah. him, about this racist yeah. dude. Like the reason that she puts up with him is because he's an authority figure and he goes to their restaurant regularly and you know, they think he thinks that they have this good relationship with one another. So 
so she keeps it up. But imagine, imagine finding out that you're not the hero of the story that you think you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What I was going to say was when I was reading this comic, the thing that kept coming back to me was the idea of, I don't know what his, what Joe Kelly or Ken Nomura's process was, but it almost felt like it was a comic that was made in response to things that had happened in recent years. Uh, like, and maybe this is me just projecting on it, but if you look at how polarized the country's become, um, the way that people, especially in families, treat one another, uh, we think about things like people going home for the holidays and you know just getting into shouting matches or not even being able to be in the same room with people who hold these different views, right? And that's exactly what we see with Sergeant and Michael. Because, again, Sergeant's kind of this stereotypical, gruff, conservative cop, and Michael's sort of a stereotypical, you know, hipster, techie, uh, liberal. And they have to coexist with one another as this family. And, and I just wondered if, well, okay, not wondered, but it just felt like, in my mind, I imagined... Joe Kelly or Ken Nomura telling this or, or deriving this story from observing a family going home for the holidays and just all across America, people coming home for the holidays and just trying to coexist with members of their own family that they can't agree with and deriving a story where he would be able to, by the end of it, get these two characters to empathize or sympathize with one one another and maybe see a little bit of the humanity in one another right and i feel like that's what this comic is it's an exercise in seeing if we can take these two sort of stock template characters and fill in enough story between the two of them that we can convincingly by the end of it, make these two characters two people that can have some sort of understanding with one another that's believable. And maybe that's something that we can all walk away with, you know? Hmm. In order for me to respond to that, let me first ask you a question. Did you read the back matter at the end of the trade? I didn't. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so there's probably some stuff that's lost on me. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I thought it was pretty fascinating because Joe Kelly writes how this story really is inspired by his own life because his father was also a police officer. And his father, on the day that Joe Kelly was born, his father fielded a call where a child had been crushed by a falling end zone goalpost at a football field. So like this, this little kid died the same day that Joe Kelly was born and his father was the one who, you know, arrived at the scene and it was something that his father struggled with. And as Joe Kelly tells it in his afterward, um, pretty much like every 
every year on his birthday, his dad would get drunk because of the memory of this kid who who was killed. And, you know, he also, I guess his dad was also an alcoholic. And, you know, it was something where the death of this kid affected his relationship with his own father. But he had no idea until he was like a grown man. And, and like, reflecting on that, he writes, I loved him. I was afraid of him. I hated him. And as these things sometimes go, eventually I forgave and tried to understand him. So it's like you can really see like him working through those kinds of thoughts and emotions as he as he's writing this comic. But then like there's there's a lot to it. Um, I would definitely recommend checking out the back matter to see insights from the creators about it. But he he does talk about how. Um, like his dad is, is his own dad was screwed up too human, but you know, just a layered complex person. Um, I'll just read, I'll read this section from the afterward. He says the character of Sarge is layered. He believes deeply in justice, but is blinded by prejudice reinforced by a narrow worldview. He's a bastard who loves his family, though he's ill-equipped to show it. He's homophobic, a borderline alcoholic, more than a little bit racist, yet he is driven to solve the murder of a black infant. When confronted with blatant, ugly, dehumanizing racism of his southern counterparts, Sarge sees a mirror image of himself and it disgusts him. Despite his age, Sarge is finally, unwittingly confronting his own role as a white man complicit in an inherently racist and dehumanizing system. Sometimes he succeeds, other times he does not. The story does not make excuses for Sarge's behavior. Understanding and forgiveness, or not, are up to the reader. Yeah. Like, I was going to say, like, listening to that, even though it's such a personal story for him, and it directly correlates with his life and how his experiences with his own father like shaped it it i do think in a way it it's kind of got this universal um relatability to it because yeah again like especially in like 2024 and we like just us seeing how like polarization has just you know ruined families at this point like maybe not like mine or yours like but you know certainly across this country we see we see that sort of thing like i do think it makes sense to me that he took his own personal experience and was able to shape it into something that all of us can kind of take like especially those of us who who have similar sort of divides with with our own fathers like it's it makes sense to me that in the act of humanizing his father in the act of like trying to define why his father is the way it is he's in his way trying to i don't know maybe inject a little bit of civility and peace into 
into just these trying and tri- uh, turbulent times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's about the complexity of the relationship between the father and the son. And I guess for a lot of people, I mean, for different readers, you know, everybody's got different background and I don't know what most people's relationship with their own fathers is like, but regardless of how it is, like whether you, you know, whether you've had a a great close knit relationship with your dad or whether you had no relationship or you had a bad relationship or whatever the case may be. I feel like a story like this works on that fundamental level because it is about a relationship between these two people. And that's the thing that carries the story. It gives it the heart. And it also, it's not like a preachy kind of story either, you know, like, I think there's a way to look at the story and feel like, feel kind of cheated because maybe you think the way that the story ends, it kind of puts like this neat little bow tie on everything or that somehow now Sarge is a good guy and all of his bigotry and, uh, you know, just the awful things that he's said and done are easily wiped over just because it ends on this happy note with him and his son, with his son driving the car. But I don't really think it does that. I don't think it's necessarily saying that, oh, his son fixed his father, you know, or saying that Michael fixed his father, you know, like clearly there's still a lot of, you know, issues that that need to be worked out. And I think if anything, it, it, the story shows that, they've made some kind of progress, you know, like this isn't, yeah, this is the end of the story, but it's not necessarily the end of the characters lives. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that's just what comes after is just left up to your imagination, but yeah, yeah. It, it just gives us a clean note to end the story, you know, because that's, that's how fiction is. And, you know, we were talking about yeah. this some time ago, I forget what episode we were discussing i think it was when we were talking about the end of deadly class but basically it's like the idea that every story ends sadly but it it just depends like where you end it right like if you end it on a happy note then you can end it on a happy note but if you just keep following stories to the end of their conclusion they all end sadly because they all just end with death and this is one of those stories where it doesn't give us anyone's death It, it just or any of the either of the main characters deaths but it gives us a way to, you know, gracefully bow out of looking at their lives yeah. at this moment in time. And that's what gives it that sense of finality. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't think it's a story that wraps it up in a neat little bow either. But I think what it does is it gives us a glimpse of them, of Sergeant and Michael both having this understanding of each other to the mm-hmm. point where it's really about the small acts that of like contrition that each of them is willing to give to one another. And that's kind of the first step towards change. If changes even ever happens at all. Right. Yeah. You know, for all we know, that's maybe as much as Sargent's ever going to change, or maybe that's as much as Michael's ever really going to get out of Sargent. But 
yeah, it's not like all of a sudden Sergeant is, you know, this uh, peace-loving hippie or something. He's <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The same guy by the end of it, you know. He he just has more of an appreciation for his son by yeah. the end of it, and his son has more and, of an appreciation for his father. So it's it goes exactly, both ways. Exactly. They have a, a exactly. closer understanding as men. Yeah, yeah, and you know just to delve into this a little more but when we get to the end of the story when uh at, towards the end of the story what ends up is sergeant ends up trying to chase down um crusher's brother and even though sergeant and michael have been fighting about this the whole way because michael just wants him to stop uh, he he doesn't want Sergeant to to murder anyone, you know, because he believes in the rule of law and he doesn't want Sergeant to take it into his own hand. But they they work out a compromise where Sergeant promises that if they can follow uh, Crusher's brother, then once he catches him, he won't murder him. So Michael steals a motorcycle and they both ride on in pursuit of Crusher's brother. But what ends up happening is they get into an accident and Michael is hospitalized. And while at the hospital, uh, Sergeant ends up seeing, he ends up seeing Crusher. He runs into Crusher right then and there. He, he thinks that all is lost, but in that moment, he sees that Crusher is cleaning the hospital. He's, a, he's staff at the hospital now. And you even see like how different his demeanor is, how different his look is. He's he's uh he's a christian uh, now i presume some some form of christian he's got a a a cross around his neck and he's not the violent man that he was but sergeant is still pursuing him for his crime and what ends up happening is he follows uh crusher home pulls a gun on him and that's when we get the rest of the story uh we get that's when we get crusher's story which is you know, it's not the murder that we think it is, although it's still a murder. What ends up happening is that Crusher was a violent man who didn't know, you know, it, there was no excuse for the kind of man that he was. It's just mm -hmm. who he was at a time in his life where he was directionless. And he met a woman and he tried to lie to himself, tried to convince himself that he was going to be this other person. And unfortunately, he, he, he didn't commit to, to that, right? He was, he, at the end of the day, he knew he was lying to himself. And what ends up happening is in a fit of anger, um, you know, he ends up killing his daughter because she won't stop crying and he's trying to watch uh this football game and he's he's upset because yeah she won't stop crying and once he the moment that he shakes her and like she just stops moving he talks about how he goes to the park and you know people around him are just treating her like she's still alive and they're talking about how you know, he needs to take care of her, but, you know, unbeknownst to them, she's already dead, and he's just going through his own crisis, and he's devastated by this, 
And while he's just in this state, he ends up leaving the girl there because someone ends up finding the girl when he puts her down. And now he just, he's, he's just, he doesn't know what else to do. And as a result, um, Sergeant ends up finding the girl and that that's what leads him down the path that he that leads them down the path to down the path to where they are now and mm-hmm. he talks about how that was a moment that just severely impacted him and how he regretted that and how you know god gave him the gift of life and he squandered it and he knew that some way out there at some point retribution was going to come he didn't necessarily know that it was going to come in the form of sergeant but he knew that someday it would and yeah what we end up seeing at the end of it is sergeant pulls the gun on him and he could very much kill him in this moment we see him take the shot but it isn't until the very end that we learn that sergeant decides to spare him and he just shot into a piece of furniture or something he shot yeah exactly he shot into a piece of furniture but i think the implication of it is in in hearing crusher's story he sees more of himself in crusher than he realizes in that he was a man who was trapped in in his lifestyle a man who didn't know how to be anything else other than what he was and as a result, just ended up hurting the people around him. And I think Sergeant saw that in his own in his own behavior, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was uh your takeaway from from that scene or or what your takeaway from that scene was. I don't think I was thinking about that scene from an emotional development standpoint. So hearing you talk about it th- that way definitely gives me some food for thought. I think I just read it as kind of like surface plot developments that kind of helped him, uh, I don't know, just come to terms with what was happening or what had happened in his relationship with Michael over the years. But I don't, I don't think I would like connected the dots like that. It was more just like an intuitive thing. Well, now I'm curious. So by the end of it, when he decides not to kill Crusher, when we find out that he spared Crusher's life, not only that, I'm, I imagine he didn't arrest him either, right? Yeah, because we see a scene of... indicating... Of, yeah, he, he didn't. We just see a scene of Crusher in his own home, and you know he's still a free he's man. Fine. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other but thing, the other little detail is that Sarge gave Crusher his uh, the little girl's shoe, and now the shoe yeah is sitting on the little table that has her picture on it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm kind of curious. Um, what was your take on that? Why did you did you wonder why Sergeant didn't just do what he was so driven to do this whole time? I'd probably say my initial reading of it was primarily that he didn't think he could really get away with it 
Like, I think there's oh. a lot of scenes where it's like, or story. There's stories where a guy is like super driven to kill someone, you know, out of a sense of vengeance or justice or something like that. And when they get to the moment of truth, they're not able to do it for some reason, and or they they consciously decide to change their mind, even though they had set their mind on that path <clears throat> at the beginning at the beginning of their journey. So I don't think I really thought too deeply about it. Maybe it's something that I'll reflect on a little bit more the next time I read the story. But yeah, I think for me, I would just say that my reading of it the first time was that he just didn't because it it really kind of doesn't make sense in the context of the story i don't know that that sounds weird when i vocalize it but it kind of feels like if he had killed the guy then the plot would have been more complicated you know and it would have moved away from becoming a story about sarge and michael and then it would turn into a story where they'd have to you somehow have to address like what happens when a cop just does something like that and like how is he just going to get away with it you know like it it adds that additional layer of of plot that that like really isn't super yeah and it's not super necessary for what the story is about i see i see okay oh interesting there was another thing that i thought was kind of interesting in terms of what i read in the back matter as well but Ken Nomura said that he was kind of struggling with with uh, starting up the comic in the beginning when he was coming up with the character designs because that's like one of the first things he does is come up with designs for the main and the major characters. And he said that the thing that kind of unlocked the story for him was when he started to draw Michael as a caricature of himself. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was looking at some stuff online, and when I saw Ken Nomura, I was like, they do kind of look alike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that caught my attention, just in terms of this whole idea of this story of a intergenerational family kind of dealing with their i guess collective baggage is there's also the other characters there's michael's wife who's this very empowered young woman she's a lawyer whereas michael is a game developer right and we we always get the sense that she's the more uh assertive one out of the two of them Mm -hmm. and we learn about Sergeant's wife as well, or his ex-wife, who I forget her name, but um, her entire situation is that she was with Sergeant for a lot of years, and they had a child together, but eventually she divorces Sergeant and becomes a, a lesbian woman, or you know, embraces her lesbianness. I I don't know how to talk about it, but. Um, yeah, what ends up happening is that she 
in spite of you know whatever her uh orientation is she is still very like sweet and caring towards sergeant so yeah there's their their entire family dynamic is really interesting so while while we're getting the a plot of michael and sergeant on this road trip there we we get inter interspersed scenes of sergeant's wife or a sergeant's ex-wife and her partner with um michael's wife and their kids mm -hmm. back at the homestead mm -hmm. and there's this one moment that in particular that catches my attention where uh michael's wife says something to to a sergeant's wife or ex-wife where she essentially says you know you're supposed to be this liberated you know progressive woman how do you how do you let sergeant treat you the way he does how do you let him talk to you the way he does and she pushes back uh sergeant's ex-wife pushes back you know just kind of letting her know that you know your your idea of like what enlightened or your idea of what uh progressive under these circumstances doesn't really take into account like the nature of our relationship you know like it, you're no nowhere near as enlightened as you think you are you you tend to miss a lot because you're just kind of pigeonholing um sergeant for what he is because in your mind he's just kind of this boogeyman stereotypical conservative right just yeah Kind of a loud asshole and eventually she reveals she talks to uh i gotta learn their names but <laughs> um she talks to uh, uh, uh sergeant's ex-wife tells uh michael's wife the story of what happened which is she was pregnant with this baby i don't I'm, i imagine that the baby was michael, michael right yeah yeah she was pregnant with michael and uh someone came to rob this bank that she worked at and even though he took the money she was still left very traumatized by the whole thing and sergeant was there for her at at that point and he made her feel protected and here she was this you know this hippie and she was in she was so affected by this experience that she even wanted sergeant to teach her how to use a gun right and mm -hmm. you know this experience just goes to show just how complicated people can be just the 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 layer of the level of degrees and layers that exist and yeah here's here's one moment between the two of them that i felt kind of encapsulated what i think this comic was about okay. so sergeant's ex-wife goes we're all made up of multiple selves selves some good some less so accepting so so accepting this in me allowed me to accept it in others i'm not stupid i'm not weak i'm not blind i choose to help out my ex despite his flaws because he did the best he could with me it's not his fault he's broken any more than it's my fault i broke his heart so yeah i i that really just jumped out at me as you know again just almost this appeal to to the reader to like understand that at the end of the day this like big boogeyman that we imagine in our head this this really like reductive view of people uh that we we look at 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's like so much more to them, right? There's reasons mm-hmm. that they are the way that they are. And, and it's like she said, it's not necessarily their fault that they're broken, you know, and, and, you know, we are not without our own flaws in these scenarios. And yeah. maybe a little bit of understanding would be helpful for everyone. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's one of those things where communicating feelings isn't easy, but it's that's how you that's how you have relationships. So like, yeah, you kind of yeah. have to. Yeah, and. Yeah, I I think, again, on a much larger scale, we're just kind of in this place now where, you know, you've given me the added context of how this is a story that Joe Kelly wrote that has a lot of basis in his own life uh, and his own, I guess, his own... uh, uh, separation from his father or the the distance between him and his father right Mm -hmm. and but i think that's something that we can all relate to nowadays especially if you look at it through the paradigm of you know just the country as one big family where you know everybody is so eager and willing to reduce everyone to just the worst elements of their character and we're just at that point as a society i guess where and you know i'm certainly guilty of this too they're just people where in in my life not even in my life just people in the world where i think i got their measure my measure of them just from you know a few moments and it's from reading a single tweet from reading a single tweet or just <laughs> seeing a clip or whatever. And it's so tempting to just kind of sum that person up as just this one disgusting thing when I know nothing about who they are or where they come from or what they're about. Right. Right. So, yeah. So that, you're going to be, you're going to be more open-minded and loving towards people that you would naturally be inclined to hate. No. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) I'll tell you this. If if they gave me if a person gave me a reason to like just show them a little bit of grace, I'd I'd be more inclined to do it, right? Mm -hmm. I'd I'd even be uh willing to entertain the idea that well, okay. I accept that they are human beings and that okay. they have just as much of a right to exist as I do. But uh, I think if if I was in a social situation where I had to kind of navigate the discussion, I, I might poke and prod to see like if there's any way to like guide them towards any sort of common ground. But that's probably as hard as I'm willing to work. <laughs> okay, okay. So they still got to meet you there. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I think so. I don't like. I don't think I have that level of compassion for humanity where I'm willing to like, you know, sacrifice my sanity and my my 
my well-being, my emotional well-being, uh, mm-hmm. in order to, you know, take on the burden of trying to meet them or, or like bring them back to a place where I can, you know, coexist yeah. harmoniously with them. Yeah, that's a hard <laughs> thing to ask. It's a, yeah, it's a super hard thing to ask for sure. <laughs> But I do think that part of the point of this book is that, at the very least, it kind of forces us as readers to confront those thoughts and to consider those things, you know? Like, it doesn't necessarily give us a moral of the story or tell us this is what you guys have to do in order to make the world a better place or something trite like that. It's a story that reveals to us some facet of truth about humanity through the story of this relationship between Sarge and Michael and through seeing that we should have those kinds of conversations in our minds and with other people, you know, we should, it makes us think it doesn't necessarily tell us what to think, but I think that's part of what makes it, um, a sophisticated piece of work, you know, because it, it's it's complex enough to give you some real meat to chew on and even cause you to do a little self-reflection, but it doesn't tell you exactly what you're supposed to think or what you're supposed to, what conclusion you're supposed to come to. We still have to do some kind of mental work in, in ourselves. Were there any other themes that jumped out at you or any other scenes that you wanted to discuss? One of the other big themes that comes up throughout the book over and over is what it has to say about police in America, I think. That's probably a big one. Um, and Joe Kelly does write about that, too, in his in his afterword. Uh, I'll, I'll just read it for the benefit of the listener here. But he writes, As of this writing, countless murders of young black men and women at the hands of the police have come to light in a way that's brought America, especially white America, to a moment of reckoning. As a nation, we have been asked to confront centuries of systemic racism, the inequalities of the justice system, and the failure of police departments to protect all citizens equally. Sometimes, Growth does not come without a good deal of pain, and it is my sincere belief that this agonizing period in our history will lead to a better, more just society if we embrace it. But today, people are hurting. They are angry. Throughout this maelstrom of emotion, disinformation, and politicization, our tiny industry has looked at itself and started asking questions. How do we portray heroes? How do we portray people of color? How do we portray the police? As the son of a policeman who was first and foremost a complex human being, I have asked myself that same question, specifically of this project. While the heart of Immortal Sergeant is about how policing poisoned a man against his son but ultimately offered a path to personal redemption, it would be naive to think that Sarge's story exists inside of a bubble. This may be a challenging time to present the story, but I believe that it is also the right time. 
So I, I feel like it's pretty fascinating to consider like what was going on in Kelly's mind as he was writing the story. Um, I forget. I forget what episode or what comic we were talking about in one of our other podcasts. Maybe it was when we were talking about Gotham Central, since that's another cop-centric comic. But there is this sense now, or at least I've, I feel like I've been seeing it show up more um, from people, you know, making comments online or things like that, where it's like you almost can't really tell stories about the police or stories that that portray police in any kind of positive light. You know, there are, I mean, people believe that all cops are bastards for a reason. And like, that's a big thing where it, it kind of makes people reevaluate art that, that uh, is about the police. And it's not that I don't think, you can't tell stories about good cops or whatever, but it, it's also something that I recognize that there are people out there who are sensitive to that or who are, you know, even militantly against the idea of a good cop being like an actual concept that exists, you know, mm-hmm. because we are in this age of increasing polarization and, you know, there's there's not a whole lot of room for any kind of like rational discourse. Sometimes it's just like I feel this way, and if you don't feel this way, or if you don't feel the same way I feel about a topic, then you're obviously an idiot or you know straight up a bad person. But yeah. I don't know. I feel like a comic like this acknowledges that. Like it is a complex situation. It's it's not necessarily like a black and white thing. I mean, this guy, when you think about it, Joe Kelly, he's saying like his father was a, a cop and definitely had his problems, but, but still had, you know, he was still for all his cop father's flaws. There's still something in there that, you know, that he loves about his father and, you know, it's complex and sometimes he hates him or whatever, but, feel like that shows up in his fiction as well you know in this comic in immortal sergeant you kind of see like both elements at play where you can see like the the brutality and the 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 racism and the the fact that sarge thinks he can do whatever he wants with impunity just because he's a cop like you see those kinds of elements at play but but you also get to see that this is person you know like he's not necessarily a good person but there are levels of complexity to him Mm. that that we can't just easily dismiss like there's still a sense yeah that um for all of his flaws and and his bigotry and racism the thing that's haunted him this whole time is the murder of a black baby so it's like Mm. it's not super simple you know it's it's more complex um narratively speaking and from an emotional standpoint as well yeah yeah there's a speech that he gives at the very end of the book where after after everything that they've been through 
even though Sargent isn't able to make it to his retirement dinner, he gives a speech where he talks about, um, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that it's a speech that's that's shaped by everything that he's experienced uh, on this road trip and what he is. I, I can try to read it to you. It's a bit of a long one, but um, let's see. Um, Once upon a time, there was a kid who wants to be a soldier. It's all he thinks about because shooting imaginary Nazis is more fun than getting his ass handed to him by his old man. War is the ultimate adventure, and he wants his shot to be a hero. 18 comes, our boy enlists, and promptly fails the med screening. Bad knees, cross-eyed, details don't matter. The adventure is over before it starts. Commiserating with his friends over a case of beer in the stump down on Route 110, you all, you all know the one. Someone gives him a bright idea. Why not be a policeman? You get a, you get a gun at least. Maybe you get a, you get to shoot some bad guys. That's why I became a cop to get a gun and maybe shoot some bad guys. I'd hazard a guess that I'm more than most of you. I'm, I'd hazard a guess that more than most of you can relate. If you're of the breed who signed up to help people, maybe after your first few years walking a beat with a big blue target on your back, your perspective your perspective has shifted. Maybe you're not sure if the people can be helped, especially in the current climate. Maybe you wonder sometimes if they are even people. I have. When the cops talk about what we do, we don't say such and such happened on the, on the adventure. We say it happened on the job. Most of the job is sitting on your ass, waiting for something to happen, waiting for trouble. And while you wait, you start thinking, playing, what if? What if I catch a bad call? What if today is the day the bad guy gets me? What if I'm not the cop that I think I am? So we put our we put armor on to protect ourselves from them and from all the what ifs. But that armor has a target on it too. And the needs and that needs protecting, and so on and so forth. Soon we got so many layers on we can't see shit. And then everyone's a bad guy. Over 55 years, I drew my sidearm exactly three times in the line of duty. Never once did I di discharge it at a human being. Never found that bad guy I was going to shoot. And I thank God for that. But it doesn't mean I didn't hurt people. I hurt plenty of people. Maybe some of them deserved it. Most didn't. I used to know the difference. But my 2020 hindsight has blurred with age. I hope that you see the job. I hope that you see the job, your folks at home, and the people you're meant to protect and serve with more clarity than I did. And that's his speech. And I think that kind of sums it up, right? Mm -hmm. Just this mm -hmm. idea that, unfortunately, you know, well, I don't know if unfortunately is, is right, but, you know, p cops are people too. And there's something happens along the way. Uh, this belief that, you know, um, yeah, maybe you can say that there are flaws in the system and there are certainly bad apples, but this belief that every cop goes into this with the illicit purpose of doing harm is, it's a caricature in and of itself. And it's not necessarily an accurate one either. It's not necessarily one that I believe, I, I think there are genuine people who want to do good. They, yeah, they want I think we know some people like that. Reason. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So it's the idea that 
it's a hard job and the conditions are the thing that forces forces some of them to become the kind of people that they are and there's just something about that speech that he gives at the end where he you know his bit of advice to them is to just you know try to approach the job with a little bit of clarity because sometimes you end up hurting the people that you care about whether it is your family or the people in your community mhm mhm yeah and you know so, this is weird you, you know what you just made me think about you made me think about people i've known uh throughout the past like 15 years or whatever that i've met uh professionally uh, um you know people who have wanted to uh to actually be cops and there are people these are guys that are not cops thankfully but i could easily <laughs> see okay. that um like those same kinds of like misguided notions of like being able to shoot bad guys that that's the kind of thing yeah. that they still cling to you know like all yeah. the racist junk it's dangerous and it's stupid <laughs> yeah like all the danger all the racist junk that sarge actually spews and, and stuff like that i've i've met people like that who wanted to be cops and i'm i'm super glad that they're not actually cops but they're still mm. like the worst people i've ever met <laughs> yeah 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 you've told me stories about that and they're not people that I necessarily want to show grace to. They're not the kind of people that I'm going to sit here and go, maybe if I am just patient enough with them, <laughs> there's yeah. a way for them to like find their way back from that. Yeah. You know, as nice of a thought as it is, like they just sound awful. <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause like the one guy I'm specifically thinking of, I'm not going to like say anything too identifying or anything, but, but, when I think about the stuff I've heard him say, he makes Sarge look like a decent chap. You know what I'm saying? Like the stuff yeah. that Sarge says in this comic, the racist stuff, the homophobic slurs, the the sexist stuff. I've heard this guy I met in real life say stuff that's even worse than that. And that guy wanted to be a cop. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah every day I'm just glad he's not. Yeah. And that's the other thing, right? Um, you know, for all of the guys like that who get screened out, there are a bunch of guys like that who think that that job is a platform to that kind of power. I'm I'm like, you know, I don't know what the ratio is, right, between like actual good decent people and people yeah. who are just want to do this because you know they they get off on you know having authority right but for all the guys that or for all the people that get screened out there are a bunch of people who don't get screened out and unfortunately yeah. they do make it into the job so it's it's definitely a flawed system um you know i i definitely wish they there was a better way to vet them because uh, at the end of the day, it, it it's a tarnished, it's a stain on the institution of of the police. Mm -hmm. That and for everything that goes wrong, they have to work that much harder to like 
correct themselves or to make up for it you know mm-hmm. that's that's mm-hmm. just kind of what happens in the dynamics of these these situations with like law enforcement agencies yeah yeah there was this one other scene that i was going to talk about just real quick i don't know if i really have much to say about it but so while while uh michael and sergeant are on their adventure there's this one moment where michael is sitting outside and sergeant goes into the bathroom and when while he's in there um crusher's brother gets on one of the buses Mm. and the bus takes off uh there are two buses that are leaving at the same time and sergeant comes out and he demands that michael tell him what bus what bus was the guy on and you know michael has just learned what sergeant's plan is and he's kind of freaking out and he tells sergeant that he tells sergeant to follow the left bus and in that moment sergeant ends up following the right bus and michael's just you know he's flummoxed and he he goes i told you to follow the left bus why are you following the right bus and sergeant basically says we've been following this bus for hours you really think i didn't memorize the license plate mm-hmm. and then he proceeds to top it off by saying i wanted to see if you were a man or if you were going to be the kind of rat that would like try to screw me over essentially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then he I goes, to know if you were a traitor no yeah if you were a traitor but he goes now i don't have to wonder now i know and yeah. this is a moment that just utterly like devastates michael yeah you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a really good moment. The artwork yeah. in that scene is is really well done too. Like I, I think throughout the entire book, Kendamura's art, the way that he uh, paces and lays things out, it's it's so free, you know, like freeing and open because he, he's not afraid to like use more pages and and use like fewer panels per page to tell the story because i feel like there are scenes where other artists might kind of like compact things and and use multiple use more panels per page but with uh ken Nomura, like there's a lot of pages that just have like four or five panels and yeah. you know you can just like breeze through the pages kind of like kind of like a manga i guess maybe that's his manga influence coming out because I don't think the issues yeah. were like strictly 22 pages or anything. Because you know it's like a nine-issue series, and this thing, this whole thing is like 340 something pages or something like that. But the the scene when when Sarge says, "No, I don't have to wonder," like the way that he draws Sarge's face with these like sharp teeth, the guy looks like a monster. And then you you look at the like next a page. Demented goblin or something. Yeah, demented <laughs> goblin. <laughs> Then you yeah. go to the next page, and it's a full page, a one-page splash of Michael being chilled to the heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's some good stuff. And then you go to the page will, after that, yeah. and it's just two panels of the car and a bunch of speed lines racing down the highway. And man, yeah, that, that's some good stuff, man. I enjoy, I enjoy the art a lot. Yeah. And I will say, though, the one thing about this scene is even though of the two between Michael and Sergeant, I'd say that I 
I think in terms of my personal values, I tended to side more with Michael in, in this over the course of this story. One of the things about it is that realization that they're not all as noble or as perfect as they think. So maybe this is kind of iffy, but Michael here, even though he wants to do the right thing, I don't know that he necessarily goes about it in the right way. Like, yeah, yeah, he's flawed of, too. Yeah, exactly. And and that's kind of a important moment for him here because if he had just not told Sergeant, if he had decided, I'm going to stick to my principles and not tell you, then on some level, Sergeant might even have more respect for him then. At least he was willing to like stand up for his principles, right? Mm-hmm. But instead, he kind of chooses... He doesn't kind of, he chooses to lie to Sergeant in order to, you know, in his mind, he thinks he's doing the right thing because, you know, he doesn't want Sergeant to, to kill a man. He doesn't want him to become a vigilante and kill mm-hmm. this man and get in trouble. But it's also a moment that's just revealing of his personality and his character, um, which is that, which is on some level, something that Sergeant has always had a problem with and something that he keeps alluding to over the course of the series, which is, you know, Michael just isn't willing to, I guess, take control of his own. Mm-hmm. He's, he's not willing to, to like assert his agency in the situation. Right. Yeah. Instead of just owning what he is like all throughout the course of the book, uh, we see time and time again where Sergeant offers Michael the chance to stop him. But what Michael has to do is he has to beat him in a fight, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, we'll see that time and time again. And each time Michael just kind of, he just kind of chickens out because, you know, he'll say things like, I'm a pacifist or he's not really a fighter. And maybe I'm more understanding and forgiving of that then you know uh well not maybe i'm definitely more understanding and forgiving of that than um you know sergeant's racism or his uh crudeness or his like cruelty but Mm -hmm. it's certainly something that just kind of reminds me that michael certainly isn't without his flaws in in over the course of this book you know there's yeah i suppose you could say there's plenty of misunderstanding and miscommunication to go around yeah definitely he's he's just as a complex character as sarge and i think that's what makes it work neither of them are these cardboard cutouts they're both layered and complex and they they make mistakes even when they're trying to do the right thing or a good thing there's something about it that just can screw things up. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 It's like, like with Michael, another scene of him that I, another scene of his that I think of is that scene pretty shortly after the lying scene, but uh, they're at the next rest stop. And then when Michael has a chance, he actually steals the car keys from his dad and then he runs away. Yeah like a straight up coward <laughs> and there's just yeah, something, yeah, yeah. Like, something comical about that like there's that whole buddy uh aspect of the of the movie where it 
they're at odds at each other against each other but there's also something kind of comedic about it when he's running away and then his dad chases him and by the time he uh gets to his son he even fires his gun into the air just to like make a whole scene of it <laughs> and it's like yeah. something that just seems super reckless and foolish but he just fires this warning shot in the air and he's like if that bullet lands and hurts somebody it's gonna be your fault <laughs> you know <laughs> like yeah it just sounds yeah. insane and then at yeah. the end of that scene <laughs> michael throws the keys into this grassy field <laughs> and right when he does it the bus drives past him and the way that double page splashes it's just framed with perfect composition where you have this side shot of sarge facing michael at this on the sidewalk and then this bus is racing past them so they both look up and as they look up the guy that sarge has been following is sitting in a window seat looking straight down at them <laughs> yeah and it just yeah. it just makes you feel like this whole thing is kind of frustrating you know like what has the whole point of this been if it's just going to end with michael throwing the keys into a grassy field <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but the great thing about it, it is that it, it doesn't oh. It's not one of those situations where Kelly writes himself into a corner or anything, you know, like it, the story does progress pretty logically from there. So definitely some, some skillful storytelling. Yeah. I do think there are quite a few times where we kind of expect the story to take a more conventional turn, you know, in terms of them hunting down Crusher and how they find him. But, Maybe to to some people they'd view the actual ending as kind of a not red herring, but you know, like a Deus Ex Machina, right? Like going to uh -huh. the hospital and they just it just ha so happens that Crusher is the like a janitor you know, or something. One of the, the janitors at the hospital, right? Yeah, exactly. The what a coincidence! The That's awfully convenient. Exactly. Exactly, right? But I, I think it's just one of those situations where it's really more about the things that are happening in between the scenes, right? It's 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 not so much about how the plot that's being driven isn't so much the mystery of it, which is where do we find Crusher and how do we deal with that, right? Because the, mm -hmm. the, the plot that's being driven is the emotional development between sergeant and his son so you know r really the entire i guess the entire device of crusher and his daughter it's just really meant to move the plot forward so it, it it's not really important that at the end of the day how they meet crusher is he just happens to work at the same hospital that they uh are admitted to when when they get hurt right yeah because you know the 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 emotional journey was what was important and in order to close it out we kind of overlook the the plot making sense <laughs> to some degree right yeah. or, or we overlook the certain things that are just very fortunate or fortuitous mm -hmm. yeah yeah 
And I think that's totally fine because yeah, that plot element, even though it's kind of the purpose of their journey, it's not something that breaks immersion in the story because the story is still really about Michael and Sarge and their yeah. fractured relationship. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, just in terms of like other moments that are really like there was this one scene and maybe it might be kind of schmaltzy, but um, after their motorcycle accident, Michael is in the hospital, he's in a coma and Sarge is, yeah, he's kind of regretful of, of, uh, of how they got there. You know, he's, maybe he's not like outwardly vocalizing it, but he, he's caring for his son, which is something that we haven't seen up to this point. And at, at this point in the story, um, you know, we've learned that Michael is a video game developer and, you know, Sarge has like zero respect for that. But while he's waiting yeah. at, um, <laughs> while he's waiting at bedside, uh, he sees, he sees Michael's phone go off. Uh, the the app goes off. The game goes off. Uh, it sends a notification to him, and he looks at it and he's confounded by it. But one of the uh, like a nurse or an orderly or another janitor comes in. I forget who the person was, but you know the person comes in, sees that the game is being played, and he's really he's really stoked by this. And you know he tries to like talk to Sergeant about it, and Sergeant's just you know he doesn't understand the appeal of it at all whatsoever. And he he asks this guy why you know why why does this matter? Like why why is this something anybody cares about? And mm-hmm. um, I think the brief uh, abridged version of what the guy says is, you know, in a world where like so many just awful things happen, sometimes we just need a little thing to like distract us and bring us a little bit of joy and what's Mm -hmm. wrong with that Mm -hmm. and in that moment when the orderly leaves for a brief second sergeant indulges in the game you know yeah i just thought that was a good moment yeah that was and he plays the game just long enough to kind of force himself to it, it forces him to like reflect on the events that have just happened and not only yeah. what just happened, but like even uh, you get these little flashback scenes of Michael's childhood with, with him. And uh, you know, it, it triggers something in his memory to think about their relationship with each other. Yeah. 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 No, that scene was, you're right. Those, those flashbacks were pretty, pretty moving scenes too, because you know, we kind of go back and look at their relationship with one another and how Michael's entire life, he's felt this sense of neglect because Sergeant was more cop than father. Mm-hmm. And it it goes, it we just see over and over how Sergeant, how uh, Michael wants to be there, uh, you know, to try to, take part in these things that are so so clearly so obviously important things or things that sergeant cares about and each time he's just kind of viewed as a disappointment mm-hmm. and it's 
kind of a flashback to an earlier moment where he finds out where Michael is tricked into going on this road trip with him at all because initially he believed that Sergeant needed Michael to go with him. But then Sergeant at a later time tells him, why would I say that to you? I don't need you for anything. I don't need you at all. It's pretty hurtful to hear from your own father. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that's just the moment that comes back to him is just, you know, we're seeing um, a young version of Michael trying to help Sergeant change a tire or, you know, him going out on, you know, a patrol or something like that, or, and uh, Michael trying to get in and him saying, but you promised you'd take me. And yeah, it's just this realization that this whole time he's just been neglecting his, his son, his own flesh and blood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Actually, um, I was just kind of flipping through the next few pages after that. It reminded me of another really good scene, um, especially in terms of the art. But when you get to page uh, 283 on the digital version, Uh that's when he, that's when Sarge walks out of the hospital room to get a cup of coffee and he's walking. Then he turns the corner and he sees the back of Crusher's head. And because he hears, he hears Crusher singing, amazing grace but then when you look at the art it's crusher he sees crusher as he was when crusher was you know a 20 year old who killed his his own daughter and then he drops the coffee and then um there's this moment where you realize oh he's just looking at the custodian and the custodian turns out to be crusher but now crusher is drawn as an aged man shaved head and you know he just looks older and at first that confused me because like there's no real indication that the first panel that that the panel on page 283 is just from sarge's perspective i was confused at what we were looking at (laughs) but but now that i finished the story like that whole scene makes a lot more sense now. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's flashing back to yeah. uh, to to the moment to the version of him that he remembered way back. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I did not catch that the first time I read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, to be fair, like I think I had to read it a couple of times to make sense of it as well. So Yeah. That's clever though. I I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, it's very cinematic actually yeah. if you think yeah. about it. Yeah. That's good stuff. And it's just so interesting because like up to this point, the version of Crusher that we see is, I don't really have the words to to describe it. So I'll try my best, but it's kind of like a nineties version of a gangster. He's kind of got this flat top. He's got like a giant chain around his neck, like really baggy clothes. And then, you know, he sees that from that profile from the back. And when he turns around, uh, Crusher's got a shaved head, and he's just this really jovial big guy now. He's rotund. <laughs> he's rotund. Yeah, it's uh, like I said, it's a really cinematic way to like have that the first dramatic encounter between these two 
over the course of this story you know it's the the, mm-hmm. the moment of re- revelation yeah and then when you turn the next page and you just see him in his like white orderly or white janitor's uniform like he just seems so unassuming kind of harmless mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. he, he looks like a giant like a polar bear or something kind of cuddly yeah, <laughs> yeah. very and you round. wouldn't even yeah, and you wouldn't even imagine that this same person was, you know, the violent child killer that Sergeant has been hunting this whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even when you look at Crusher's eyes in the next couple pages, he just looks a lot more gentle than you would imagine or expect. Yeah, the way that they draw him, they're way rounder than mm-hmm. than what we're accustomed to. Like, yeah, like, okay, on page um 293 right when you you see a flashback there and you see there's the little baby's foot with the shoe you see sergeant holding the gun in his hand and then you Mm -hmm. see the version of uh crusher from way back in the day and his eyes aren't round at all they're they're kind of snake-like his pupils are like yeah his pupils are like slivers his eyes don't really have rounded I mean, they're like half circles, right? But, you know, combine that with the expression on his mouth. You're right. He looks mean. He looks dangerous. Mm -hmm. And when you go back to the version of him, like, say, if you go back to page 287 and you look at that version of him in the upper left corner, his eyes are so round. And, you know, it's that roundness that just conveys a sense of, like, cuteness and harmlessness to him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Comics. They're amazing. They are. Very good. Yep. Do you have any anything other else? final thoughts or anything? Uh no. I I think I'm satisfied with uh yeah, I'm satisfied with what I had to say. Yourself? Yeah. Same. Great piece of work. Satisfying to talk about. Definitely great to read and something that's worth rereading over and over in the future. Yeah. Well, I will. Okay. Here's one thing that I I might want to add. You sent some reviews over to me prior to uh, our discussion of this. Where I just I googled Immortal Sergeant reviews, Uh and the, the first Google result was a guy. It's I don't know why it shows up, but it's something from Goodreads from December 12, 2023. So, you know, fairly recent, a month yeah. ago. And and on Google, that snippet that shows up says, nearly 350 pages of tedious, boring garbage. Oof. Never entertaining yeah. and always trying. Immortal Sergeant is a disappointing follow-up from this creative team. <laughs> yeah. And I I didn't read too much of the guy's... Uh, 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 review but it did sound like it, it essentially sounded like he didn't like who sergeant was as a person you know and what he was portraying and that was enough for him to kind of tune out um did you read the review or or i, I did end up I did? I did end up reading it you want to yeah. you want me to to read what it says sure just for <laughs> your, your entertainment yeah <laughs> okay Actually, when I look at the review now, it looks like it's, uh, let's see, 
wait a minute. Oh no, I'm I'm looking at a different review. Hang on. Wait, I think it's in our Google chat. I was looking at a, another review and there was another guy who gave it uh one star. Detective Sergeant James Sergeant uh, is begrudgingly retiring from the police force. Worse, his strange son Michael. Oh, it's just a uh, Joe Kelly and Kendra made a superb comic years ago called Psycho Giants. It Are you like moving your head? It's it's. I'm losing your connection here. Sorry. Uh, it says I'm guessing Joe Kelly is a big Rick and Morty fan because Jim and Jim and Michael are basically those characters. Jim even looks like Rick. You can all but hear Morty's whiny voice coming out of Michael. The book isn't nearly as inventive or funny as that show, though. Jim and Michael have a difficult relationship, so of course they end up on a father-son road trip. Gee, I wonder if Jim will come to appreciate the value of his son's gaming app. Uh, yeah, it just... I'm not going to like name-check this guy, but yeah, it's pretty... I don't know. I'm I'm not impressed by by his cynicism. <laughs> Let me put it that way. In fact, I find his cynicism tedious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> Did you think that these characters were anything like Rick and Morty? When this guy mentioned it, I guess I guess you could I, I I can see the connection, but you know, like I don't think that's I don't think that's entirely what they're like. Like I, like I that wasn't my first thought when I read this book was oh these guys are just you know um, parodies of Rick and Morty or whatever or like a, a template copy of Rick and Morty. But now that this guy mentioned it. I, I can sort of see the similarities, but I think that's a very reductive takeaway. And, you know, I, I, I just think this guy was essentially unmoved by the father-son journey that they had and, you know, the the growth that they experienced. And, and under those circumstances, it's like, I don't know what to tell you. You know, like, I, I don't know what you do like, but that's it's puzzling to me that that's not something that should be you know universally understood i'm looking at the rest of his review uh the part that you didn't read and there's yeah man the stuff he wrote about kenny murray's art is pretty uh pathetic too like uh, here here's yeah. what he said he, he writes kenny murray's art has always been loose but wow it's a whole new level of that here it's similar to the style in his most recent solo comic, Never Open It. It's serviceable. You can easily follow along with the action and get what's happening in a scene, but it still looks really slapdash. Some pages honestly look like thumbnails rather than the finished article. Man, does this guy even know how to read comics? I don't get that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at more of his review, and he's essentially... Like, my main takeaway is that he he calls it predictably trite and yeah he just sounds pretty cynical and i'm not i'm not inclined to appreciate any takes that this guy has <laughs> yeah yeah me neither yeah. 
if you want a take, if you want a good take, go to Between the Gutters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to us. Agreed. Don't go to Goodreads. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you All know right. what? There's one more thing I did want to mention before we uh, conclude our discussion. Sure. But one more thing that I discovered when I Googled Immortal Sergeant is that Immortal Sergeant is also the name of a 1943 American war film. Have you ever heard of that movie? It stars An Henry Fonda American. and Maureen O'Hara. A what film? American war film from 1943. Oh, no. I'd never heard of it. Yeah, so it's a an old movie. I've I've never watched it. I wasn't familiar with it. I just Googled it and it showed up in one of the results. So I looked it up on Wikipedia and read the Wikipedia plot summary. And this I don't know if this is a coincidence or if this somehow like inspired Joe Kelly to, you know, pick that title. But apparently the story is about how in North Africa there's a, a sergeant leading a British patrol who and they're accompanied by a corporal uh, from from Canada. And basically like stuff happens where a bunch of the men get killed, but the sergeant, you know, he's trying to lead these survivors um, to to safety, but he he ends up getting uh, wounded, and then the unassertive Canadian guy, uh, you know, doesn't want to leave this guy behind. So the sergeant kills himself. So Spence, the corporal, will have to lead the remaining survivors and keep on moving. Oh. So it's like this story about about this guy who's like i guess he's like a gung-ho you know stereotypical soldier type who's like super hard and and tough and a guy who's kind of like more meek or like mild-mannered i guess even though he's a soldier he's he's not he doesn't have that assertive dominating personality but through this experience the corporal uh finds a new f- sense of assertiveness and and growth through that experience huh yeah that's like uh that's a question for a q and and a with uh joe kelly right there and the other thing the name of the sergeant in the movie is named sergeant kelly (laughs) (laughs) nice really makes me there's way too many coincidences there like there yeah it just feels like he had to have taken something from it right yeah (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's all, all right. I got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think we did good. Okay, if nothing else, let's uh what uh what would you recommend to someone who has read this and wants to read more? Okay, so the obvious ones that we'll start with are I Killed Giants because it's by the same creative team and it's about a mother and daughter relationship as opposed to a father and son relationship. So there's obvious clear connective tissue between those two works uh the ken nimura books that we mentioned you've read henshin i assume that you would recommend that and i do i read yeah and i read never open it the taboo trilogy i would definitely recommend that as well Uh, but as far as other stuff that's kind of like in the vein or at least captures like an element of the story of Immortal Sergeant, 
uh, I, I was trying to think of different stories that had like father son elements or um, really abrasive main characters. And I actually ended up coming up with quite a few of them. So I'll just uh, start off with the ones I on my on my list. And I'll start off with one that's unfortunately actually kind of tough to find because it's out of print in English, but it's a manga by Kaiji Kawaguchi called Eagle, the making of an Asian American president. And that's a story that's very much rooted in, in the politics of like the two thousands. And it's a fictional story about like an Asian American campaigning to be the first Asian American U S president. But the reason why I picked that one is that it's also a story about a neglectful father and a son. I guess in this case, I'd say he's an illegitimate son, but um, it has that kind of element of somebody trying to get to know his father and the father not being particularly interested in it. So that, that stands out to me. Uh, there's a Harvey Picar comic called Ego and Hubris, the Michael Malice story, and it's drawn by Gary Dumb. And I picked that one as another recommendation because it's it's been a while since I've read that one. So I'm, I'm a little bit fuzzy on a lot of the details. But from what I remember, it's basically Harvey Picar doing an auto or doing a biography about someone that he knows named Michael Malice. And this person is just an awful person. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's like all there is to it. It's in the title, Ego and Hubris. Yeah. <laughs> our our uh, awful people's uh, story collections. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember okay. liking that comic a lot, though. Like, that's something I pulled off the shelf earlier when I was looking for other things I'd recommend. And it made me want to reread it. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. <laughs> Then there's 100 Bullets, Volume 3, Hang Up on the Hanglow, which is issues 15 to 19 of the series by Brian Azzarello and Eduardo Rizzo. I picked that one because it's another pretty memorable father-son story. Um, in this case, the father isn't really a cop, but uh, there's still some stuff in there that I think does make it pretty compelling when you're looking for stories about fathers and sons. Hmm. Then there's Bad Weekend by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. That was a short graphic novel. It actually collects criminal numbers two and three, but like combines them into like a graphic novel with additional like scenes and pages to smooth it out. But it's a story where, uh, a young artist follows around this like older guy who's like, I don't know, in, in like his seventies or eighties or something. And he's just this grizzled comic book artist who, who uh, kind of just hates everybody. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's just a weekend. They're at a convention and this guy is spending time with this guy who, this older guy who, who just hates everybody and he's down on everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Yeah. And then I'm going to do something I never imagined I would be doing, but I'm, I'm recommending a Donny Cates comic now. You ready for this, Albert? <laughs> do tell, do tell. 
I'm recommending God Country by Donny Cates and Jeff Shaw. Have you ever read that one? I haven't. Okay, this is one of his earlier works, Donny Cates' earlier works for Image. And it's about this old man who, who's uh, he's basically suffering from dementia. But when he touches uh, a mystical sword, it, it not only gives him like Thor-like powers, but it also like restores his mind. Ooh. And it's a story about how his so his wife has passed away, but he has adult children, and particularly his son is like struggling to you know get to know his father or like take care of his father and like you know there's all the the baggage from the past about his father being like a neglectful father and and stuff like that, but there's this fantasy element that comes into play where because of this sword, uh, the father gets his mind restored again and it, it gives him a chance him and his son a chance to like i guess bond bond yeah exactly yeah yeah it, that that was a good comic i i read that one early in the pandemic but some of the some of the details are already kind of like fading to me i i would want to reread that one that was a good comic it's probably the on the higher end of donny cade's comics it's probably my favorite Donny Cates comic. Nice. I mean, I I liked his uh, Thanos run fine enough, but I don't really feel like I have to seek it out to buy my own copy of his Thanos. You know, it's like if I came across it super cheap, I'd probably think about buying it. But yeah, it's not like a big priority or anything. Whereas with God yeah. Country, after reading it, if I if I didn't already find it for cheap in the first place, I would definitely want to buy my own copy of it. That's quite a stirring recommendation, considering what we think of Donny Cates. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but even, Take that for what you will. <laughs> yeah, even writers that we don't really think too highly of are sometimes capable of impressing us. We're not yeah, that cold-hearted. Yeah. We're we're willing to. <laughs> To judge we can be gracious individually yeah exactly exactly uh, i'm not so petty exactly we're we're uh, big men yeah yeah i mean i'm pretty petty but <laughs> <laughs> okay and then the final thing that i would recommend is from joe kelly's fellow man of action joe casey it's Officer Down, which is drawn by Chris Burnham. And Officer Down is my recommendation because if you like the idea of a cop being a total hard ass, Officer Down is like pretty much the ultimate version of that. And it's it's pretty satirical. And I think if you just if you're the person who who doesn't really understand satire, I think you'll still be able to enjoy it if you take it at face value. But if you're, you know, an intelligent reader, you'll enjoy it even more. Okay. Okay. What you got, Albert? All right. So I felt like there was so much to choose from here. So I I felt like I had to be kind of sparing in what my final tally was going to be. I didn't want to just throw everything out there. Unlike but... me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah i think 
in terms of one of the first things that jumped out at me was uh, a comic called Three Story. It's by Matt Kint. And that's a story about a giant man and his life. But I guess the thing that it's a, it's a play on words because the man is three stories tall, but it's actually a comic that is also comprised of three individual stories. And they're about the women in his life, the women that ultimately become important to him. And, you know, not to spoil too much, hopefully, but by the very end of it, uh, one of the women that will become important to him is his daughter. And she likewise i guess similar to michael she goes on a journey to kind of know her father better because they were just due to the circumstances of you know his career uh they were distant from one another and like they never really truly got to know each other um yeah so i i thought based on that element it'd be something that I could recommend that was similar to uh, Immortal Sergeant. Uh, in terms of the other comic that I was thinking of that's probably more one-for-one one in terms of a comparison would be Sweet Tooth by Jeff Lemire, who wrote and drew it. And Jeff Lemire is someone we've talked about a lot. He's someone who... Uh, tends to rely heavily on family themes in all of his comics mm -hmm. you, you you'll tend to see some version of it so i would recommend sweet tooth because yeah it's it's essentially about a young boy and the relationship that he has with a father figure a found father figure and you know the complications that they go through and it also which also includes you know inevitably finding out that the person that you revere isn't always as good or as noble as you think they are that your parents are just flawed human beings um yeah uh Actually, I just came up with a couple more things while nice. the, while I was like thinking about it. But um, another comic that I could recommend, also a Jeff Lemire comic, would be Hit Girl in Canada. Oh, and, yeah, that is a story by Jeff Lemire, drawn by Eduardo Russo, and it's a comic. Have you read that one, Drew? Yeah, quite a while ago. I remember I read your copies. Yeah. That must and have been at thing... least like four or five years ago. Yeah. And the thing about that is if you've ever, if you know anything about, uh, you know, Kick-Ass and that property or that comic, um, you know, spoilers, but in the series in the comic series uh hit girl's father is uh big daddy i believe that's his name right yeah yeah so what happens in the comic is uh he 
dresses her up and trains her to be a superhero. But while on one of their it, during Kickass during that story, what ends up happening is Big Daddy ends up dying, and the story is about Hit Girl going to Canada, and you know, going on this mission. But the thing about the story is, over the course of the mission, she remembers the lessons that her father teaches her, and you know, it's. It's over-the-top gore and violence, but at the same time, Jeff uh, Jeff Lemire is still able to inject something sweet about <laughs> her feelings for her father at the end of it. So yeah. I, I I do think that that's, you know, if we're talking child-parent relationships, that's that would be a my my recommendation for it. Okay, okay. Um, and the one other uh, thing that I would recommend is I've been listening to this podcast lately uh, called Steven University. It's an old podcast, but it's a podcast about the, uh, all the various episodes of Steven Universe. And there's an episode called The Test. And that's something that always stuck out to me as an episode, but listening to the podcast discuss it 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 struck home even closer because it's an episode about steven trying to prove himself trying to prove that he's worthy and they the 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 gems in his family um create this test for him to take and over the course of the test he you know, he thinks that he's really excelling at it until he finds out that his his caretakers just gave him this really easy uh, these really easy challenges to do. And you would think that he'd be upset by this revelation, but it's really a moment where, as a child, you he he kind of reflects on, you know, how human your parents his parents can be and how sometimes even though they don't know it they need him to kind of play his part in the whole thing and be and kind of validate their parenting essentially Mm -hmm. so yeah that was a really good episode nice and that's all i got very good man very good yeah here we are baby all right. Well, if nothing else, uh, if you would like to contribute to the conversation, if there's anything that you have any questions about or any recommendations of your own that you want to make or any uh, observations that you want to include, feel free to hit us up at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at us or X, whatever. I'm, I'm not even going to, I'm not going <laughs> to give, give that man the satisfaction. You can tweet at us. Uh, on at X at Between the Gutters. You can DM us on Instagram or we're on threads too. And uh, if you happen to be listening to us on whatever platform you're listening to us on, if you can give us a good rating and you know share, like, subscribe, that would help us so that other people can find us and listen to us. Which is exactly what we desire. <laughs> yes. People listening to us 
That's all I've ever wanted. Recognition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Next week, we are going to embark on our read-through for 2024. The past few years, we've been reading through a series every year and dedicating one episode a month to cover that series. So last year, we did Deadly Class. This year, we're covering Solo, the DC comic Solo. So it's going to be a different experience because... It's a 12-issue series, so each month we'll just be reading one issue, but each issue is basically 48 pages of comics from a single artist. So it'll give us a chance to not only read and discuss the comic, but probably also discuss that specific artist and the work uh, that we might be familiar with. Um, I think there are some artists throughout the run later on that we might not be too familiar with, outside of that specific issue of solo but at least next week with solo number one we're going to be talking about tim sale so yeah peep that when it comes out and we hope to hear from you thanks for listening everybody peace out bye everyone <laughs>